welcome to episode 24 of the Underground Christian Podcast. Thank you for supporting this platform and helping to spread the word about this podcast. This is not your typical fluffernutter podcast. This is a podcast where we confront many difficult spiritual issues head on. So before we do that, we should take a moment to consider the words of God in Joshua 1 and take them to heart. It was the day before Joshua and the Israelites were to enter the promised land, and they were considerably nervous about it. The land was not empty, and they were not going to be able to just stroll in and set up house. It was occupied by a people who didn't want them there, and they were going to have to fight for it. Joshua was leading a group of men who were anything but a polished group of soldiers. They were real good with desert survival, but hadn't spent any time in military training for the campaign of their lives. They were about to face the hostile and violent response of a large group of men who had spent their lives in military training, and they knew it. Unlike the wars of today, where we have rules of engagement, they were facing their opposition at a time when the victors typically slaughter the losers, including men, women, and children, except for the ones they wanted to rape or keep around as slaves. And the people were feeling the pressure. So God said, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The phrase the Lord, when written in the Old Testament, is simply a way of writing the proper name Yahweh. The original translators didn't want to use God's holy name, so that was their workaround, and the tradition is continued in most of the translations. Thousands of years after Joshua, Christians were given the same promise from Jesus, which is recorded at the end of the book of Matthew, when he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yahweh was with the Israelites, and Jesus is with the Christians. Yahweh gave Jesus the authority to rule in heaven, where he currently resides, and on earth, where he will soon reside. Meanwhile, during his absence, Jesus has given us a job to do. We are to make disciples for Jesus and baptize them in the name of the Trinitarian God. When we make disciples of Jesus, that doesn't mean we're just looking for people who are willing to say a prayer and then get dunked in water, but we want to find people who are willing to take the name of God as their own name even in the face of persecution from the world. It's a name that has authority, but also it has great responsibility. It is the name Christian. When a woman joins to her husband in marriage, she traditionally takes his last name. And when we join to Jesus' church, we take on Jesus' title, the Christ. The water baptism is merely a symbol of the spiritual union that occurs in that event. The real baptism is the taking of God's name because that makes us part of his family. And as a part of the family, we're expected to live up to the family name. It is a high and exalted name and one that God does not want sullied. When we take that name in earnest, we're going to end up on the danger list when it comes to the spiritual forces in this world, which control the material worldly forces of Satan's kingdom. Remember from last week that the Christ established his church on the hostile territory of the world within the boundaries of Satan's kingdom. When we publicly pronounce that we belong to Christ and publicly take the name Christian, we have essentially declared war on Satan through Jesus, and by extension, we become enemies to Satan's physical forces in this world. So don't be surprised when his forces act like enemies. 
We're still living under the shadow of the great Christian expansion that infiltrated all the way into government structures. But make no mistake, Satan is reclaiming that territory and is quickly degrading governmental protections as fast as satanically possible. We may still have the luxury to operate openly and freely in America, but there is a planned expiration date for that luxury. Still, until that expiration date arrives, we have an assignment to make disciples of Christ. So how do we do that? Do we ask them to recite a nice little ditty at an altar call? No. We make disciples of Christ by teaching them to observe all the things that Christ commanded. That means works, for those who may have missed that. Christ wants to add people into his kingdom who are interested in obeying him and working for him. He doesn't want the ones who just want to be there to get the free stuff of salvation. The free stuff Christians are everywhere, and they don't bother Satan at all because they don't obey Christ. The ones he's worried about are the ones who want to be obedient to Christ, the ones who will observe and do all of Christ's commandments. It's against those Christians that Satan sends his worldly army, which includes all the technology and media companies that spy on us and deplatform us, that smear our reputations, seize our assets, forfeit our jobs, and do all they can to take away our ability to live freely and communicate with others. It includes the humanist philosophers who preach moral and physical perversion and corruption in our institutions of higher learning and compose educational materials that corrupt our children's minds all the way down to the nursery schools, and who train the militant advocates who say, Tolerance for me, but not for thee. It's the government officials who write and enforce the laws, statutes, and ordinances that compel people to participate in degrading, evil, and delusional human activities against their will, often facing the business end of a government weapon if they refuse. Those and a hundred other reasons are why we need to be brave. But don't worry. Everywhere we go, in everything we do, Jesus will be there to protect our souls. He may not protect our bodies so much, but he will protect our souls, which is the important part. He advised us not to get too attached to our bodies, which draw us to the world, when he said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So it really comes down to the question of which we value more, our bodies or our souls. Most people pick their bodies, but I'll pick the soul, the one that God gave me. Meanwhile, I perceive that Satan has grown tired of the church stomping around in his backyard, and he's looking to give it a good old-fashioned boot-thumping whooping. We ended last episode hearing a quote from the book 1984 about a boot stomping on our face. It was an image that describes the motivation of those who seek to enslave humanity. They love power, including the power to hurt and to harm, and the image of a boot stomping on our face, forever, captures their mentality and ideals. And if Satan and his human minions could pull off that kind of political coup today, they would. But they can't, not yet anyway, but they're working toward that goal and they soon will be able to pull it off. We don't have to dig around in dark corners and piece together dusty, torn fragments of information to prove our suspicions. And we don't need to worry about being defamed with the label of conspiracy theorist because it isn't a conspiracy when they tell you exactly what they're going to do. But nevertheless, we will still be labeled conspiracy theorists by the members of the world who listen to and believe the world's mouthpieces. So don't let it bother you if you're called one. But before we get into what the captains of destiny are trying to achieve, 
I should first address why we are bothering to examine it at all. Why is it that Jesus, the Son of God, didn't wipe out the world and rebuild it in his image the first time he showed up? It would have saved us all this multi-millennium run of trouble. Well, the answer is that he wants a kingdom that will be filled with people who really want him as their Lord. He's not interested in the people who want Satan as their Lord, and it takes time and effort to sort them out. It takes time for the gospel to travel around the globe, and it takes time for the diverse people of the world to respond to the gospel. And then there are the prophetic requirements that the Bible stipulates must be met before Christ can return to claim his kingdom on earth. The first is that he wants broad representation among the people of the earth. Jesus wants to make the point to Satan that he doesn't just take a little sliver of land and that's it. Jesus is going to penetrate every stronghold of Satan and rescue representatives of those strongholds from the grip of Satan. Revelation 7.9 says that Christ will have in his kingdom a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Uh, I note it doesn't say anything about gender identity, but just getting different ethnicities and language groups and people groups in the kingdom takes a little time. The second requirement is that the kingdom is going to contain a certain number of Gentiles, a number known only to God. In Romans 11.25, Paul wrote, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own sight, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament but revealed in the New Testament. The Jews are currently under judgment by God for their national unwillingness to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. The judgment comes in the form of spiritual blindness to the reality of who Christ is. It is partial because some Jews do recognize him. The Jews who recognize Christ are called Messianic Jews, and they recognize that Jesus was their and is their Messiah. How long will the Jewish nation remain spiritually blinded to the truth? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That is a set number of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who come to believe in Christ and enter the kingdom. Once that number is reached, the veil of judgment will be lifted and all Israel will be saved, according to Romans 11.26, or at least all that remains of Israel at that point in history. And the final requirement before Christ returns is stated in Revelation 6, verses 10 to 11, which reads, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So the final requirement is for a certain number of Christians to be martyred before the return of Christ, and they are going to die at the hands of Satan's henchmen. We can therefore conclude with absolute certainty that the killing has not yet been completed, which brings us to the topic of the day. What did these human instruments of satanic evil have in mind on this fine June day in the 21st century? One thing they have in mind is the absolute slavery of humanity to a class of people known as the elites, or the oligarchs, or the special people, the ones who feel entitled to put their boot on your face. They will form a one-world global government, and they have chosen to describe themselves as globalists. It has a nice ring to it. 
They have an organization that serves as their governmental mouthpiece called the World Economic Forum. One of its leaders is Klaus Schwab. He likes to tell us what they're up to by ruminating about the Fourth Industrial Revolution and putting his ruminations in terms that sound beneficial and appealing. A revolution is a major event signaling the change from one system to another, often involving prolonged violence and the use of force. Other times, it can mean a fundamental change in how the world operates. Remember, Obama said that fundamental change is coming. Well, Klaus sometimes serves as the propaganda arm of the World Economic Forum, sort of like Joseph Goebbels did in Nazi Germany. Only Klaus comes off as much more frightening than Goebbels, which is probably intended. One of the funniest examples of his propaganda efforts was when the World Economic Forum produced an advertisement that showed a happy, smiling couple receiving a rental package in the mail while the narrator, or the subtitle, said, In the Fourth Industrial Revolution, you will own nothing and be happy. You will be happy to rent, apparently, whatever you need, but you will never own anything. They really seem to think we're so dumb that no one would ask the obvious question, if we don't own anything, then who will? Because the Fourth Industrial Revolution will not eliminate material things. It's not going to eliminate material stuff. So if we don't own it, who does? Answer, the billionaire and trillionaire rulers of the serfs. Or the special people. They will own it. And they will be very, very happy. And very, very rich. Not that we Christians are supposed to be overly concerned with material things, but we do need some material things to survive. So here's a word quiz. What do we call people who don't own any material things? There are multiple possible answers here, but one of the things we might call them is property. Because if you don't own anything, and you're dependent on things, then you're dependent on the people who do own things. So people who own nothing become property. And what is another term for people who are property? Slaves. But don't worry. The designer slave owners have the whole system worked out. They will grade us on how good and productive and pleasing a slave we are, and they will reward us according to their judgments in the form of digital currency. With your digital passport or digital ID, you will be able to buy food or rent a movie or take a bus somewhere or maybe get some new shoes when the old ones wear out. That is, if you have enough of that digital currency deposited to your account, which isn't really your account because you don't own anything. It's the slave owner's account, and he or she or them or Z can give or take away your digital bank balance at any time they want because, well, they own it. Now, knowing how evil and vindictive and petty people can be, is this the kind of power and authority that you want to give to anyone but Jesus Christ? If the person who controls that account doesn't like us, or if we become a burden to that person, then our bank account can be emptied because it doesn't belong to us anyway. We will suddenly have no way to eat, no way to pay for the tiny apartment we were assigned, no way to heat it or air condition it or even buy some water to drink in it. There will be no medical care for us and no clothing either. But you know, the oligarchs don't need to risk getting some bad publicity by doing something so harsh and so public to their serfs. Since they will own us, they will have the option to eliminate the troublemakers quietly. After all, troublemakers are just more useless mouths to feed, and mouths don't have any inherent value or purpose if they're useless. That's what it will be like in the new designer slave society. That's what it's like to have a boot stomp on your face, 
forever. So that is just an example of one of their lofty goals. Last week, we got a glimpse into the ways they are engineering this new breakout society from the spiritual perspective. Now it's time to hear about their plans from the people on the ground. Let's begin in 2016 with Klaus Schwab's speech to the World Government Forum. Not the World Economic Forum, so don't be confused. This is the World Government Forum that is held annually in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. I mean, can they get any more obvious with their goals than the title of that meeting? Let's hear what Klaus has to say. It's a great pleasure to be here again and to talk about the fourth industrial revolution. It's a young generation which certainly will drive the future, but governments have to shape the future. When I was here last year, I talked about innovation. And many of the things I talked about were considered to be fiction, far away in the future. But ladies and gentlemen, excellencies, the future is already here. The future has begun. Let me tell you why this fourth industrial revolution is so crucial, so overwhelming in terms of the changes it will bring to us. Of course, we know the first industrial revolution with the invention of the steam engine, the second one with the electricity facilitating mass production, the third one with the rise of the computer leading us into the digital age. But the first one is different. Four differences. The first one is the speed. The fourth revolution is not coming like the waves in the ocean, small waves. It's coming like a tsunami. It will be overwhelming to see how fast the change will happen in an exponential speed. Remember, this is 2016 that this speech took place. He said, technological change is coming fast and in such a way that it will overwhelm us when it hits. He then goes on or went on to explain four things that the technologies will change, with number four being particularly interesting. The second difference is, it's not just one breakthrough. It's a combination of many breakthroughs at the same time. In the book which is available to you on the fourth industrial revolution, I mentioned 23 different breakthroughs, like the Internet of Things, like brain research. And I could go on and on. Of course, drones, robots, artificial intelligence, and so on. And all those different technologies reinforce each another. The third difference is this technological revolution does not bring just new products to us or services. It changes the systems 
And this leads me to the fourth difference of this technological revolution. It changes not only what we are doing, it changes us. Because it's a fusion of our physical, digital, and biological spheres. It's an integration of those spheres. Just think of sensors planted into our brains. The opportunities are immense, and we have to prepare ourselves already now. History needs us now. History needs Klaus and his friends. Now, he's not an egomaniac or anything like that. Governments, as I said at the beginning, are challenged. They have to change. Let me just lay out three changes which I feel are absolutely essential. The first one is that governments recognize the role they have to play in order to foster innovation. Second, governments have to reorganize themselves. The third difference, or the third change governments have to do and have to undertake is to put the whole emphasis on the development of human capital. Change means opportunities. So we have to feel passionate about the change. We have to embrace all the possibilities this new fourth industrial revolution provides us with. And finally, we, good, we need good nerves. The key message is the unsinkable in many ways has to become sinkable. So we need good nerves. But this new technological revolution, it can provide the entry card for humanity into a new civilization. That's what governments should do. Governments are challenged and they have to change. Who says they have to change? Why the globalist oligarchs do? He's telling an auditorium filled with government leaders, including lots of Arabs, that their governments have to change. The looks on their faces in the video is precious, but Sheikh Watima faces sitting nearby is clearly on Klaus's side on this one. So what are those technological changes that the governments of the world are absolutely going to have to accept way back in 2016? Well, let's skip ahead a few years and find out from the man who is Klaus Schwab's senior and most trusted advisor. His name is Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. According to Wikipedia, that all-knowing source of absolutely factual and accurate information, Mr. Harari is an Israeli public intellectual, historian, and professor at the University of Jerusalem. I wonder what makes one a public intellectual. Anyway, this is the guy who has an absolute grip on the happenings that are going to come to your world via the Great Reset. I'm going to do something I rarely do, which is play an entire speech, in this case by Mr. Harari, because, um, well, we just need to hear it. The whole thing is filled, crammed full with important information because it sets the stage for what they're going to try to do. And welcome to a conversation with Professor Yuval Noah Harari. My name's Gillian Tett. I'm the US Managing Editor of the Financial Times. Now, there are not many historians who would be put on the main stage 
of the Congress Center of the World Economic Forum, sandwiched between Angela Merkel and Macron. I think there are even fewer who could fill the room almost as much as Angela Merkel, and almost none who would have the experience as we were waiting in the green room and Angela Merkel came through, Chancellor Merkel came through, she, she took care to stop, go up to Yuval and introduce herself and say, I've read your book. Pretty amazing. Gag me. I'll save you the rest of the introduction and skip right to the opening remarks of Nuval. Professor Harari, Professor Yuval, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, hello everybody. So, I want to talk to you today about the future of our species and really the future of life. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. So that's where they are taking the future. Mr. Harari does not speak just for himself, but he's giving us the perspective that is directing the activities of the oligarchs. They believe you and I are going to be one of the last generations of what we might call natural humans, ones with natural bodies, brains, and minds, or to put it in a more biblical context, the last of God's created humans. And why do they think this? Because they are the ones who are engineering the changes. Let's continue. These will be the main products of the economy, of the 21st century economy. Not textiles and vehicles and weapons, but bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. Those who control the data control the future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself. Let that sink in for a minute. The people who own and control the data are the ones who will be able to determine what a person looks like in the future. But what does he mean by that? He means the people who own the data will be the ones who determine what we will become as an organism. There's no question that too much of anything in the hands of too few people is destructive to all kinds of things, not least of which is freedom. Because today, data is the most important asset in the world. In ancient times, land was the most important asset. And if too much land became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into aristocrats and commoners. Then in the modern age, in the last two centuries, machinery replaced land as the most important asset. And if too many of the machines became concentrated in too few hands, humanity split into classes, into capitalists and proletariats. Now data is replacing machinery as the most important asset and 
if too much of the data becomes concentrated in too few hands, humanity will split not into classes, it will split into species, into different species. Now, why is data so important? It's important because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack human beings and other organisms. Yes, you heard that correctly. He said, we can hack human beings and other organisms. That is in the present tense. So we're not talking about science fiction. We're not projecting into the future. They can do it today, right now. And what does Mr. Harari mean by hack human beings? Now, what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power, and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. Not data about what I buy or where I go, but data about what is happening inside my body and inside my brain. To hack a human being, you need two things. Tremendous computing power and biometric data. Keep these two things in mind for the next couple of episodes. But for right now, consider what it means to hack something. What does it mean to hack a computer or a financial account? It means to take it over, to control it, to exploit it. Hacking is not a peaceful endeavor. It's a hostile action. It's always a hostile action, and Mr. Harari knows that because he's a smart guy. He selects his words carefully. Hacking a human being is a hostile, aggressive action, and Mr. Harari is telling us it's possible to hack a human being today. I'll let you in on a secret when it comes to technology. Whatever the masters of the universe admit to achieving technologically is at least two generations or more likely three generations behind what they've actually achieved. That's a basic rule of OPSEC, operational security. Never let the enemy know your true capabilities because then they might be able to engineer a way around them. But you can let your adversary know what you did three generations ago with safety. If they engineer a defense to that, it won't help them much based on what you actually possess. So let's continue. Until today, nobody had the necessary computing power and the necessary data to hack humanity. Even if the Soviet KGB or the Spanish Inquisition followed you around everywhere, 24 hours a day, watching everything you do, listening to everything you say, still, they didn't have the computing power and the biological knowledge necessary to make sense of what was happening inside your body and brain and to understand how you feel and what you think and what you want. But this is now changing because of two simultaneous revolutions. On the one hand, advances in computer science and especially the rise of machine learning and AI are giving us the necessary computing power. This is an important topic that Harari glosses over, but we will return to in another video. Harari instead focuses on the application of that power to biology. And at the same time, advances in biology, and especially in brain science, are giving us the necessary understanding, biological understanding. 
you can really summarize 150 years of biological research since Charles Darwin in three words. Organisms are algorithms. This is the big insight of the modern life sciences, that organisms, whether viruses or bananas or humans, they are really just biochemical algorithms. And we are learning how to decipher these algorithms. For those who may not be familiar with the term, an algorithm is a program. Harari is saying that all living things are essentially programs that can be deciphered and understood. And why does he say that? Well, there's two reasons. First, because the basis of life is controlled by DNA, which is essentially a computer code. Our illustrious scientists have been splicing and dicing and recombining DNA for many years now, like kids in a woodshop, and they're finding all kinds of neat things they can do with it. And the second reason is neurological. The brain is a complex neurological computing center that controls our bodies and processes our thoughts. Atheists think the brain generates thoughts, but I disagree. It is a processing center, but the thoughts originate elsewhere. Nevertheless, it's fundamental to translating thoughts in a way that the thoughts can interact with the body and with the material world. If someone could control our brain, they could, at a minimum, have a great degree of control over our thoughts and how they're expressed. Maybe they could plant thoughts we might not otherwise have. It's all about the data. So let's listen to what they intend to do to obtain all that data. Now, when the two revolutions merge, when the infotech revolution merges with the biotech revolution, what you get is the ability to hack human beings. And maybe the most important invention for the merger of infotech and biotech is the biometric sensor that translates biochemical processes in the body and the brain into electronic signals that a computer can store and analyze. A biometric sensor. What's that? It's a nanoscale device, which is a tiny fraction of the size of a blood cell. Or, more accurately, it's a series of self-assembling nanotech devices that are placed into our bodies to monitor our biometric activities and transmit that data, via the Internet of Things, to a central processing facility which is controlled by the people who own the data. Well, no one would ever allow that to happen to them, you might think in disbelief. No, probably not, if you told them what you were doing. So why would they tell you, future slave, what their real objective is? They could just offer you some small inducement to get you to take an experimental potion, like, say, a slice of pizza or an ice cream cone or a lottery ticket. But if the stubborn ones hold out for something better, the oligarchs could ratchet it up to a chance at a scholarship or maybe even a cash prize. Both would be little more than pocket change to the billionaire oligarchs. The possible ways to get people to participate in taking a potion just boggles the imagination. Or maybe the government could just require the infusion of the potion to save the world from germs upon penalty of unemployment, isolation, refusal of services, and cessation of shopping privileges. And if that isn't enough, there is always the declaration of a health emergency that will lead to forced incarceration where the potion will be forcibly injected into the holdouts. Something like that. And once you have enough 
such biometric information and enough computing power, you can create algorithms that know me better than I know myself. And humans really don't know themselves very well. This is why algorithms have a real chance of getting to know ourselves better. We don't really know ourselves. To give an example, when I was 21, I finally realized that I was gay after living for several years in denial. And this is not exceptional. A lot of gay men live in denial for many years. They don't know something very important about themselves. I bet you didn't think you were gay, huh? My brother-in-law didn't think he was a chick either until he discovered that he was, much to the revulsion of normal men everywhere. So I guess Nuval is right. We really don't know ourselves. Who would have thought that the demon advisor to the demon mouthpiece would be gay? Now imagine the situation in 10 or 20 years when an algorithm can tell any teenager exactly where he or she is on the gay-straight spectrum and even how malleable this position is. The algorithm tracks your eye movements, your blood pressure, your brain activity, and tells you who you are. Now that's just what we need. A computer that tells us what we are. Brian, don't you know that you are a cross-dressing, genderqueer, heteronormative, feminist allyship? Why, no, Deep Thought. I had no idea. I just thought I was a farmer. Well, you are, and you should go out and buy a new wardrobe to terrify a captive audience of two-year-olds down at the library. Gosh, Deep Thought, now that you mention it, that would make me feel more like myself. Thanks. Now, maybe you personally wouldn't like to make use of such an algorithm. But maybe you find yourself in some boring birthday party of somebody from your class at school, and one of your friends has this wonderful idea that I've just heard about this cool new algorithm that tells you your sexual orientation. And wouldn't it be very a lot of fun if everybody just takes turns testing themselves on this algorithm as everybody else is watching and commenting? What would you do? Would you just walk away? And even if you walk away, and even if you keep hiding from your classmates or from yourself, you will not be able to hide from Amazon and Alibaba and the secret police. As you surf the internet, as you watch videos or check your social feed, the algorithms will be monitoring your eye movements, your blood pressure, your brain activity, and they will know. They could tell Coca-Cola that if you want to sell this person some fuzzy, sugary drink, don't use the advertisement with the shirtless girl use the advertisement with the shirtless guy. You wouldn't even know that this was happening, but they will know, and this information will be worth billions. Once we have algorithms that can understand me better than I understand myself, they could predict my desires, manipulate my emotions, and even take decisions on my behalf. And if we are not careful, the outcome might be the rise of digital dictatorships. In the 20th century, democracy generally outperformed dictatorship because democracy was better at processing data 
and making decisions. We are used to thinking about democracy and dictatorship in ethical or political terms. But actually, these are two different methods to process information. Democracy processes information in a distributed way. It distributes the information and the power to make decisions between many institutions and individuals. Dictatorship, on the other hand, concentrates all the information and power in one place. Now, given the technological conditions of the 20th century, distributed data processing worked better than centralized data processing, which is one of the main reasons why democracy outperformed dictatorship and why, for example, the US economy outperformed the Soviet economy. But this is true only under the unique technological conditions of the 20th century. In the 21st century, new technological revolutions, especially AI and machine learning, might swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. They might make centralized data processing far more efficient than distributed data processing. And if democracy cannot adapt to these new conditions, then humans will come to live under the rule of digital dictatorships. And already at present, we are seeing the formation of more and more sophisticated surveillance regimes throughout the world, not just by authoritarian regimes, but also by democratic governments. The US, for example, is building a global surveillance system, while my home country of Israel is trying to build a total surveillance regime in the West Bank. Let me stop here because I don't want anybody to be deceived. No matter how politically nice his words sound, Nuval is not our friend. He is not the friend of democracies. He has no more concern for you or me than he does an ant. He's merely conveying the reality of today as a possibility for tomorrow so as not to terrify people. This is not what could happen. This is what is happening now. These people love to brag, and they're like all psychopathic sadists. They love to precipitate fear in the minds of their victims. They also manipulate people really well. It's an old trick. Convince your target that you are on their side and that you support their desires and needs, and they will follow you. Uh, of course, you need an enemy mixed in there too, but, you know, conservatives and normal people. So pay attention to what he's telling you, but don't believe for a minute that he will lift a finger to help any of us when it comes to digital dictatorship. He just told us that the United States is building a total surveillance system just like his home country of Israel. They are both modeled after China. Do you want to live in China? Home of the starving people jumping out of windows? But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. And if indeed we succeed in hacking and engineering life, this will be 
not just the greatest revolution in the history of humanity. This will be the greatest revolution in biology since the very beginning of life four billion years ago. If we can hack human life, it will be the greatest achievement since, uh, well, forever. He just said it. That's their goal. They want to re-engineer human life. Everything they're doing revolves around that single purpose. For four billion years, nothing fundamental changed in the basic rules of the game of life. All of life for four billion years, dinosaurs, amoebas, tomatoes, humans, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and to the laws of organic biochemistry. But this is now about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. The clouds are very important because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Not like that god up in the sky, he says contemptuously. All Satanists say it like that. And at the same time, science may enable life after being confined to, for four billion years to the limited realm of organic compounds, science may enab enable life to break out into the inorganic realm. The term breakout connotes a good, desirable thing. He is saying that our being confined to organic life is bad. This is an idea that's literally emerging out of hell, and later on we're going to see how important this idea really is coming out of hell. So they not only want to hack human life to change it according to their design, they want to convert it to inorganic life, which is kind of like a dead form of life, if you think about it. So after four billion years of organic life shaped by natural selection, we are entering the era of inorganic life shaped by intelligent design. This is why the ownership of data is so important. If we don't regulate it, a tiny elite may come to control not just the future of human societies, but the shape of life forms in the future. So how to regulate the data, the ownership of data? We have had 10,000 years of experience regulating the ownership of land. We have had a few centuries of experience regulating the ownership of industrial machinery. But we don't have much experience in regulating the ownership of data, which is inherently far more difficult because unlike land and unlike machinery, data is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It can move at the speed of light and you can create as many copies of it as you want. So does the data about my DNA, my brain, my body, my life, does it belong to me or to some corporation or to the government or perhaps to the human collective? At present, big corporations are holding much of the data and people are becoming worried about it. 
But mandating governments to nationalize the data may curb the power of the big corporations only in order to give rise to digital dictatorships. And politicians really, many politicians at least, are like musicians. And the instrument they play on is the human emotional and biochemical system. A politician gives a speech and there is a wave of fear all over the country. A politician tweets and there is an explosion of anger and hatred. Now, I don't think we should give these musicians more sophisticated instruments to play on. And I certainly don't think they are ready to be entrusted with the future of life in the universe. Especially as many politicians and governments seem incapable of producing meaningful visions for the future. And instead, what they sell the public are nostalgic fantasies about going back to the past. And as a historian, I can tell you two things about the past. First of all, it wasn't fun. You wouldn't like to really go back there. And secondly, it's not coming back. So nostalgic fantasies really are not a solution. So who should own the data? I frankly don't know. I think the discussion has just begun. Most people, when they hear the talk about regula regulating data, they think about privacy, about uh, shopping, about companies, corporations that know where I go and what I, I buy. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are much more important things at stake. So the discussion has hardly begun, and we cannot expect instant answers. We had better call upon our scientists, our philosophers, our lawyers, and even our poets, or especially our poets, to turn their attention to this big question. How do you regulate the ownership of data? The future, not just of humanity, but the future of life itself may depend on the answer to this question. Now, Nuval is a bright guy. I like his characterization of politicians and government, and no, data of the kind he's talking about should not be vested in government. Neither should it be vested in corporations or in the hands of a few elite oligarchs. But that's where it is, and so the real question is what are they going to do with all that data? That's what we're going to see next episode, because before we can engineer a solution to a problem, we have to see what the actual problem is. Hopefully, we'll be able to get there before they starve us with food shortages or lock us down in a dystopian power grab or activate whatever form of new and exotic weapon they've been deploying. Meanwhile, pray for spiritual protection and make plans for hard and difficult days ahead. Days when nothing operates the way we're used to having things operate. And stop believing anything the government or the mainstream media tell you. This is a great time to increase prayer but decrease any kind of an injection they want to put into your bloodstream and get together with like-minded believers. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be a tremendous blessing when we get to that part where you can see clearly exactly what Jesus meant by that. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, Please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face or whatever your app has to encourage others to listen. 
hey, listen to it twice. That'll help. Please pray for this podcast to reach more people and help them personally and spiritually. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, your ears tuned, and your feet moving forward to do the work of God.